Welcome to Conceptually Speaking, the show where we interview experts in a variety of fields to uncover the systems and patterns that help us to conceptualize and reconceptualize our world. I'm Julie Stern, founder and principal facilitator for Learning That Transfers. And I'm Trevor Elio, English language arts lead for Learning That Transfers. This podcast uses our mental model as a sense-making tool through requiring, connecting, and transferring conceptual relationships to unlock new situations. Our guests identify three to five concepts at the heart of their field, and we discuss how those play out in a variety of settings. You can find out more about our work, including our online courses and other professional learning offerings at learningthattransfers.com. Picture this. A group of passionate fans are huddled around their devices. Their favorite outlet has just dropped the latest response to a hotly contested article that has divided their community. As the group reads through, they debate, discuss, inquire, and post in their chosen social network. They make reference to other similar works, cite compelling evidence, and have different perspectives on the future direction of their community in the wake of this article. Now, what kind of community did you have in mind during this scene? Were you imagining a group of teens debating the latest controversy from the Real Housewives? Or what about a group of literary scholars discussing a new interpretation that challenges the consensus around a canonical text? What if it could work for both? That might surprise you, but it's an overlap that's incredibly familiar to our guest this week, Assistant Professor of English Language Arts Education at SUNY Empire State College, Dr. Karis Jones. Dr. Jones is a self-styled ACAFAN activist studying the interpretive and discursive practices that happen in fandom spaces. Like me, she believes this broadening of how we conceptualize literacy can have transformative implications for how we frame and teach the discipline. Yeah, and that that was really a paradigm shift for me, like moving from thinking about like, okay, like what discourse communities am I imagining my students participating in? Like, what is the, the purpose of my class? Is it to prepare them to, to just participate in communities of literary scholars? In which case it seems like a very narrow purpose for, for, for using discourse. Or is it to, to participate in many types of discourse communities? And then, like you said, pull back, think about meta discourse and discursive navigation. And that has, it's just really kind of changed the way that I think about the purpose of, of PLA education. So whether you're a literary scholar, Marvel movie fan, or K-pop stan, this episode has much to offer. Enjoy. Hello, Karis, and welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So could you begin by talking to our guests a little bit about your body of work so we can kind of set the stage for the rest of our dialogue? Yeah, I can. So my work, my my interest in fandoms and why building from fandoms is important in educational spaces comes from my work as a teacher. When I was teaching in Brooklyn um, as a middle school and high school ELA teacher, I just really felt like I could see my students' passionate literacy practices happening all the time. Um, I had students reading fan fictions and YA novels and like, you know, 
reading during class, you know, their own books or writing entire Wattpad novels. And I was like so impressed and just really excited about what they were doing. And it was clear to me that there was a barrier between the literacy practices that they were enjoying and liking and doing and then my class, you know, and the way that schools structure ELA, what counted as literacy, what did not. And um, just the more that I saw this play out and I saw students who are like thriving in their personal literacy lives, failing in ELA classes, it just became clear to me, like there's something wrong with our ELA classes, uh, particularly in the way that we serve students of color and like just more diverse student populations. And, um, you know, it, it just really broke my heart. You know, I, I think that when you're an ELA teacher, you come into it because you love, you know, texts. And um, I, I just felt like school was like deadening, <laughs> like studying books. Like I could, I could almost see like my students start to hate, you know, reading in certain ways. And, and I just thought, you know, like there has to be a better way of doing this. Like, where is the joy coming from? How can we redesign what we're doing so that all of our students' joys can be present in class? And I know you care about that too. I'm yeah, happy yeah, about no, that very much so, very much so. Well, it, you bring up something that I, I find myself reflecting on often, and it sounds like you had a realization that the discipline of English language arts maybe isn't what you first thought it was when you entered into the classroom, right? Like, yeah. like when you go into the classroom, you're like, every kid is going to love the same novels that I did because I'm going to have so much passion when I teach them. And and yes. in some cases, right, you can you can communicate and convey some of that, but but um over time, you know, I, I had similar realizations that that maybe my goal isn't just to have students love individual texts um, or, or even what I first thought of as literature when I entered into the classroom. So did you have like a, a moment when you maybe like took a risk and brought in uh, maybe a, a piece of, of fan fiction or a, a multimedia element or, or some sort of um, project that made it begin to click for you where, where your understanding of the discipline began to kind of expand and change? Yeah, that's really, that's a really great question. I think that one um, moment that was really powerful for me. So I was working with um, Scott Storm, my um, academic BFF. He's at NYU right now. And um, he teaches at a consortium school in Manhattan. And um, for my dissertation, we had dreamed up this, this class design together called Fandom Kingdom. And um, as part of the design, we really wanted to see what it looked like for students to think about disciplinary communities as fandoms. Um, and so we started studying this novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. And, um, you know, we, we were studying it and um, we, we kind of shifted back more into traditional ways of, of studying literature. And you could really kind of see the passion in the class going down. And then one day, Scott and I and our co-teacher, we were, we were talking and we were like, okay, today we're going to liven it up. And we brought in a fan fiction of Their Eyes Were Watching God. And like we read part of it together. 
and we read comments that people had left on the fan fiction and we opened up this discussion like okay what's the difference between writing a fan fiction and the discourse that fan fiction writers use and like the discourse that literary critics use like how how does it feel to you how do you feel about reading it like um what do they care about what do they want and we just i i was just so excited to see students bring in their funds of knowledge of fan fiction and like at first some of them were kind of embarrassed like yeah like I read One Direction fan fiction on Wattpad and like, can I say that in class? And But like, we we had this one student who had been totally disengaged with that their eyes were watching God text. But then when we brought in the, the fan fiction, um, she was able to say, well, as both a fan and a literary scholar, you know, like I, yes. and, and it was just, it was so good. Um, it was really exciting. And um, yeah, I, I just feel like I, I'm really resonating with what you're saying too. Like you come in maybe to being a teacher because you're like, I want students to become fans of what I love. Yes. And instead I feel like being a teacher is becoming to me more like, okay, what do my students love? And and how can we all, how can our classroom, how can we be passionate about all of this, all of these texts together? And so our, our classroom becomes this multi-text fandom. It, it's not just everyone being a fan of what I like, but all <laughs> of us sharing what we love together. I love that. And it's um, that sort of realization. It's one of my, I think it's, I think it's from G the idea of meta discursive awareness. One of my favorite um, yes. <laughs> words. Yeah. It, it's just kids realizing, wait, there are people who have these communities that they're engaged in and they talk about this thing they're interested in. And I do that with my friends in this thing. And you're saying that literary scholars, you know, learned adults in higher ed institutions do that too. And, and I yeah. feel like that the light bulbs as they switch on, must be really kind of uh, of exciting to see. Um, and one of the things that I've been kind of like wrestling with and thinking about um, the work that that we sort of um, do uh, well, on, on this podcast and in our in our book, Larry, that transfers is looking at how the content and the themes um, in a literary work might be echoed in a film or a, a TikTok or, or or the current events. What is the difference between looking at that, like how the sort of like themes or ideas play out of the content versus the idea of these communities um, of practice and how they talk about text. Could, could you kind of break down? Because I feel like our listeners are probably familiar with the idea of themes showing up across text, but maybe not as much that idea of like that, that sort of discursive or meta-discursive awareness. So, so when I think about like what, what is a fandom or like how do we define yeah, a fandom? Yeah. yeah um, I, I usually think about three things, like there's some kind of central shared text. And, and I mean text very broadly. Um, a text could be like a novel or a, or a book, or um, in the case of a TV show, it's like a series, um, like serialized text. I think that fandoms can form around bands right? Like a mm. band as a text, you know, they have songs, we can think of songs as text, but I think the band itself, like the information about 
people's lives, like the tweets that the band members themselves make, like all of those can be kind of central texts. Um, I think about um, how a sports team could be a text, you know, or like sports teams create texts. Um, and, and I've been more and more interested in this idea of um, how particular politicians or political parties, like Ooh, the, the yes. text, yeah, like that there can be fandoms that form around, around them. Um, so, so you have texts, you have people who are emotionally invested in those texts, right? Um, and those are the fans, like some kind of fans, like people. Um, and then those people talk to each other in various ways. There are like spaces for discourse. Um, and that could look like, you know, you and me having a podcast about, you know, our favorite TV show as it comes out, or it could look like groups of people gathering at conventions and, and having conversations. It could be people on Tumblr, you know, um, coalescing around particular hashtags. There are so many different spaces for fandom discourse. And so that's that's kind of how I conceptualize it. And so if I, you know, think about literary scholars being in a fandom, right? Like they have their central texts, they have the fans who are the literary scholars and they engage in discourse through journals and articles and sometimes on Twitter. And so uh, it's it's helped me map and kind of pick apart various discourse communities, just like thinking about those three things. I love that. And, and the reason that I ask you to, to bring it down to that gran granular level is I, I feel like until I encountered, um, you know, your work and uh, Scott's work, I hadn't thought about academic communities as sort of fandoms like I, you know I, I'd read about discourse communities and those ideas kind of made sense but the idea of taking the same sort of frame that one would apply to like you know fans of One Direction and applying it to like literary scholars it, it hadn't even crossed my mind and I think that for a lot of English teachers those practices are just sort of um they're, they're sort of opaque like we, we that's just what you do when you go into an English class mm. and why do you do that because that's what happens in English class have you ever been in English class before you know and I think that that idea that they come from a place right and that place is sort of a, a socially constructed community that has these sort of norms I think is really powerful for people to start wrestling with to kind of find um those connections yeah and that that was really a paradigm shift for me like moving from thinking about like okay like what discourse communities am I imagining my students participating in? Like, what is the the purpose of my class? Is it to prepare them to, to just participate in communities of literary scholars? In which case, it seems like a very narrow purpose for, yeah, for, yeah. for using discourse. Or is it to, to participate in many types of discourse communities? And then, like you said, pull back, think about... Um, meta discourse and discursive navigation um and uh that has it's just really kind of changed the way that i think about the purpose of of you had education. an analogy in your dissertation about it i, I think it was like about like a, a river or navigating like a, yeah like, a, like a kayaking Ka yeah, yeah. Like, could, you, could you break that down because that that for me i thought was really beautiful and really captured captured that yeah so I was trying to explain the difference between the way some people talk about fandoms in transfer um, and the way that um, I was thinking about supporting student navigation. 
And so um, in research about fandoms, oftentimes people will talk about bridging fandom work to academic work. So it's like you're bringing in um, students' funds of knowledge, you know, student repertoires, and, and like you're valuing it insofar as it connects directly to yeah, yeah. academic texts that you want them to do. Um, and uh, the, the problem with that is that it can um, be appropriative, deadening, um, it doesn't really see students' literacy practices as like valuable in and of themselves, but only valuable if they're going to lead to certain adult pedagogical goals. And um, I, I just really wrestled with that because as somebody who studies fans in fandoms, like their literacy practices are just so amazing and rich and like they're doing this kind of deep um, analysis together. And I, 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 I think it's really problematic for us as teachers to say, oh, this only matters if it leads to some kind of academic outcome, particularly for um, students who are um, historically marginalized because you, um, you're, you're taking something that's valuable to them, you're decontextualizing it and saying mm. like, okay, like make it work in these standard academic spaces yeah. that are really deadening and appropriative. Um, and so instead of thinking about fandoms like that, I, I mean, it's very tempting, right? It, it, it's that, that framework is still tempting for me because it's easy to explain to administrators, like, look, you should yeah. value what I'm doing because it's going to lead to, you know, these goals that you already value. It's it's very tempting to to talk about fandoms that way, um, but instead, in um, in my dissertation, I um, asked readers to think about students as kayakers, um, and so they're they're in a kayak. And there are many different types of waters they could navigate. And um, each, each of those different types of water is like a different type of, of discourse. And so you, you aren't just telling them, you're not just supporting them in um, one type of water because you know that in their life, like they're going to want to be crossing waters and um, going in different directions. And you can't know exactly which path they'll be on or, you know, which discourses they're going to engage in. And instead, you're thinking about um, how are students navigating these many different types of waters. Um, and so that was a metaphor that was helpful to me. Actually, Trevor, this is so funny. My, um, my uh, dissertation proposal defense, we like talked about this a lot. Like, what, what are you talking about, Karis? What do you mean? Like, you really need to crystallize this and, and the kayak, like the kayak. Yeah, yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. No, it, and it's great. And, and I think it speaks to that idea of like, what does it look like? Or, or I, what are the, what is the difference between, you know, valuing and honoring uh, the students' literacy practices you know, on their own terms versus instrumentalizing them to further, you know, the objectives that are laid out by curriculum A, B, or C, or, or you know, administrator X, Y, or Z. 
Um, and and I, I always think about there was an SNL skit a while ago that kind of like made fun of teachers being like, hey, kids, did you know that poetry and hip hop are the same? And all the kids were kind of like groaning. And it's like, you know, it, there there's a fine line between like, what does it look like to honor like, you know, the literacy practices mm. students have around hip hop? And then you just like, you know, Googling, you know, rap lyrics and bringing them into your students and being like, hey, kids, like, yeah, it's, it has a rhyme scheme, right? Yes. Like, like let's look at this theme. Yeah. 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 And, and um, I, I, as part of like a pilot to my dissertation, I did um, just a ton of interviews with students. Like I interviewed them about their, their fandom practices and like what, what it looked like for them to, to navigate a fandom space. Um, and it was really just striking to me how many students, um, didn't didn't see what they were doing as like reading and writing you know like yeah, like it was yeah. kind of like a, a separate thing um because when they brought it to school you know it looks so different from the practices that you do at school or because people would make fun of it or would say like oh like those practices are like lesser um and so like something that I've been interested um, about in in my scholarship is disrupting those hierarchies of taste um, mm. that that are that are really problematic and that are really easy to reproduce in English classrooms. I, I love that. Could you talk a little bit about um, like what that disruption looks like? Yeah. Well, so one thing that I um, always say to teachers is that we have to expand the way that we think about literacy, you know, in order to, yeah. to talk to students about this. I, I know that you agree with this because you do sure. a lot of multi-literacies and mm -hmm. uh, you think about different modalities and new literacies and, and whatnot. Um, but uh, just like starting with this idea that um, literacy is not just reading and writing print text. Like literacy can be so much more than that. Literacy is about communicating, engaging, you know, thinking about texts in a much more expanded way. Um, and so when I'm um, working with students around this, like we do uh, look at theory and we do think about discourse and texts and like, what do those things mean? Um, and and we, we expand, um, just the the definition of literacy because it, it has a lot of baggage mm. um and uh one one thing that i found interesting to do with um with pre-service teachers is to just go through recent news articles and pull quotes about literacy and then to like have them reflect on like how how is literacy being conceptualized here like is it something that's happening in your head like something cognitive? Is it about like decoding? Um, is it is it individual or is it a social thing? Is it about communicating? Um, is it situated within particular cultures? Um, what what types of texts are we imagining um, are being um, read or listened to or you know like physically embodied? Um, and uh, I think that that's really important. And then another thing that I found is um, 
ideologies around standard language are mm. really problematic. Like this idea that like um, one, of my, one of my students um, who I interviewed um, was a huge fan of One Direction. And she just, she taught me everything I know uh, about One Direction and the band and the members and like the relational dynamics and their music videos. It, it was great. Um, uh, but uh, we, we started to talk about fan fiction and how much fan fiction she had read and how she connected with people around this fan fiction. Um, and, you know, I, I hadn't realized that like she would, she would read them and then people annotate it. And uh, oh, on wow. Wattpad, yeah, on Wattpad, you can annotate it and you can like talk to each other about particular phrases and like your emotional reactions to it. And just this, um, this, this really extensive um, textual conversation, right? And um, the way that she talked about the fan fiction was always negative. Like, well, I've moved on to better books you know, like these were not great. And, and so um, we dug into that, like it, into like that emotion. And um, as I went through the interviews and, and I was tracing like, okay, like what is she feeling close to? What is she feeling distant from? The, the grammar really emerged like, oh, you know, like mm. these Wattpad stories are not really it's not really literature. I'm not really engaging in like um, proper literary practices because the the grammar is bad. Um, and it, it really connected to um, what she had learned in school, what she had learned about like writing and what writing is. And, and in the process of conceptualizing, oh, and also um, this, this student, um was an English language learner and so she had wow. like engaged in a lot of discourse around like speaking grammar well and writing well and like how important it was for her to be a good writer not only for herself but for lifting up like others in her community and like being successful and and just all of this stuff and and because of that um she she didn't want to read things that were not grammatically correct uh. because she felt like then she wasn't being prepared for like SATs and for it, you know, and, and it was just um, it like when we we wrote a piece together called Breaking Up with Wattpad because it felt like a breakup. Like I have to say goodbye to this fan fiction because it's not grammatically correct enough. Um, and oh, if wow. I read it, you know, I'm not going to be able to, you know, have the literacy skills that I want to have. And uh, so I, I just felt like that was tragic um, that we're perpetuating educational systems that say, oh, yes, like these things that you love to do for fun, they don't count as literacy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> literacy is studying for the SATs. Like, oh, God. Uh, and 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 that's yeah and like the that stark contrast right studying for the SATs it's not even an authentic practice you know in and of itself it is no. literally just like a completely arbitrary test that is sort of like constructed there's no like there's no discourse around it unless you know people like making memes to like make fun of the questions for that year or whatever but yeah. it is it is it is so interesting that like you know what is actually like an authentic literacy practice that's sourced in some sort of community is sort of 
pushed away and what's uplifted is the SAT from the yeah, and, and like talk about um, I'm thinking about April Baker Bell and like the concept of white mainstream English. Like yeah. you, you need to study these words, this vocabulary, this way of speaking instead of like the discourse of communities that you like to be in because you have to yeah. speak this way to be successful. Like, so so br- bringing in a little bit of like, like a Lisa Delpit perspective, what would you say to somebody who was like, okay, well, you know, we want to value those, but like, you know, students to, to make it through those systems to provide materially for, you know, themselves and their families, they have to be aware of those. So how, how would you sort of respond to like that sort of like perspective of like showing or giving students access to those codes, endorse discourses of power in ways that don't elevate them in a hierarchy, but maybe place them in like sort of like a, like a contextual code switching kind of bucket? Hmm. Well, so one one thing that I think about um, about fandoms particularly is that fandoms are not utopias. Like fandoms mm. are not places. Um, I mean, fandoms are places of great passion. Um, I think that there are really valuable literacy practices happening. Um, but on the other hand, there are problematic, marginalizing. Um, you know. It, you know, we can think about um, certain video games and the discourses that they have yeah. around them, or the way that racism, sex, sexism, homophobia play out in discourse um, on, you know, certain Discord servers or Twitch streams and and whatnot. So, like, uh, uh, you know, I I think that there is definitely value in fandom practices. And then there are critical tools that we have in our discipline and as educators that that we can use to to disrupt toxicity. And I think that there's um, problematic um, language problems and toxicity in our literary disciplinary spaces as well. And so our classrooms, um, Scott and I often thought about our classroom as like a hybrid space. Um, where we're not aligning, like we we aren't a fandom. We aren't, you know, purely like the, you know, the literary scholarship community. We're this space in between where we're comparing, we're contrasting, we're unpacking, and we're critiquing. Um, we're critiquing both fandom practices and disciplinary practices. And we're trying to come up with new transformational hybrid discourses. Um, that are pushing all of these communities toward justice. Um, and so we saw students um, writing essays, analyzing texts um, where they were transforming like conventions of academic English by bringing in more passion, exclamation points, like they're, you know, like just bringing the, the, the passion of fan spaces into their, their writing um which which i love but also saw them bringing critical tools into their fandom spaces yeah. right to say like okay like um the the ways that sonic fans are engaging with the company are problematic <laughs> and yeah. troublesome and if we want to see things change we have to go about this differently um or uh students who did great critical work 
um, with texts like The Office, like thinking about like, how do we feel about the humor and um, like how The Office is, is dealing um, with issues like through critical lenses. And so um, I, I hope that that helps answer it. Like, I, I think that, um, like I'm not thinking about code switching between disciplinary communities and fandoms. I, I'm thinking more about like, okay, how are we navigating across these different spaces to make more transformational discourses? Like ones that we don't have yet. I guess the code switching frame sort of sees the people doing it as separate from that community as opposed to somebody who is an agent who can actively change and transform. Yeah. I really yeah, like yeah. that. I, I really appreciate that, that framing. And, and I, similarly, some of the things that gets me most excited is, you know, obviously it's great when students can take their, their funds of knowledge and their practices and, and use them to make sense of whatever literary texts they are doing. But I honestly, I feel like I get more juiced when kids come in and they talk about how they applied some sort of critical lens or literary lens to like a, a fandom that they're in, to a, a show that they're watching. Um, because for me, that's that shows that it's real and they're taking ownership of it. And it's not yeah. a performance or something that they're doing to satisfy an assignment that I give, but just in their own lives and their own literacy practices, they see the value of what, of what you know, some of the things that we learn in, in a class um, when we're looking or thinking like um, literary scholars. And that just the idea of transformation and that third hybrid space gets me really excited because I also think we're moving to a world that is becoming increasingly um, hybrid in terms of like the the the, the discourse communities, the the norms, the sp I mean the spaces. If you're looking at like remote work versus working in an office, they're all sort of bleeding together. Um, and yeah. it's really it's becoming harder to extricate them from Something one another. Something that has been blowing my mind um, is this um, new phenomenon right now. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called um, Dracula Daily. It's a group no, of I've not heard. Oh, this is so cool. Um, it's a group of people, um, or, or rather it started with this one person and he took Dracula and he started releasing it as like a newsletter in serial format. So like really? every day you get um, something from the book that's like dated with today's date. Um, and so it's it's not in order. It's like all out of order. It's in chronological order. Um, and thousands of people on Tumblr are now like reading it, making memes, discussing it, <laughs> like it in, in these fandom spaces. Yeah. And um, what is so interesting to me about it is that people keep comparing it to school. They're like, haha, you know, Tumblr university is real. And we're all <laughs> like engaging with, you know, we're all taking a class on Dracula. Yeah. Um, the memes are our discussion postings. That is amazing. <laughs> you know, and and so it's um like like look at this hybrid space that just popped out, you know, because people want to do it. Um, and like, you know, Dracula is one of those texts that you do, you know, you could imagine reading in an ELA classroom and it being really boring and like people yeah. not wanting to do it. Um, but like the the context, the context for responding to Dracula when when you have the freedom to make multimodal texts, you know, to like talk to people about what's interesting to you, to to read into the characters and like what their relationships might be um, without kind of somebody shaping the way that you look at it through like the lens of the literary community. Yeah. 
you know, is, is very compelling. And that doesn't mean that people don't bring things in from like, like historical context or like how people view the book, like people still bring that in and they still talk about it. Um, yeah. So like hybrid, I, I really yeah. love that. Yeah. And, and so there, there's a, a hybrid sort of space that I've been interested in just personally that, that sort of ended up bleeding um, into my research. Um, where there is sort of a community of video essayists um, on YouTube that's called like LeftTube or BreadTube. And they basically, they're doing, I mean, full-blown. And uh, the last podcast guest we had on was um, FD Signifier. And he's a good example of this. I mean, it, it is basically as close as one could get to academic sort of knowledge production without going through the extensive steps of, of going through all the citations and putting it on a journal. Um, and there is a discourse emerging around that on Twitter, on Reddit, on um, YouTube comments are a pretty toxic place. So I don't know if I would even call that discourse, but <laughs> just, just generally speaking, it's, it's really fascinating to see, like, you know, people get access to content that and, and ideas that they wouldn't have been exposed to unless they took like an upper level philosophy course in college. Um, yeah. And they're just sitting and watching a two hour video about it. It's crazy yeah. to me. Um, yeah. that high, that's sort of a hybrid nature of it. Um, and as well as some of like the the aesthetics that um, multimodal sort of tech, uh, text production can, can provide that I think kind of hook people to being more engaged by it. Um, it's just really fascinating to see um, all the different ways that that hy um, hybridity is manifesting itself all yeah. over the world. And, and it makes me think like one, okay, as, as scholars, how are we producing knowledge in, yeah. in ways that are accessible, engaging, fun, interesting, um, and, and like still giving our, our citations and giving credit yeah. to the ideas that we're building on because in video essays, they do that. Um, and then as English teachers, how are we transforming the way that we think of knowledge production there as well? Um, like, I, I just think it's terrible when we're, we're like, okay, five paragraph essay, like, <laughs> yeah, well, and it's, um, I was anymore. A, a few, I guess, I guess it was over the summer. I was in, uh, the, um, multimodality and um, semiotics sig they had just like a meeting and they were just talking about like okay guys seriously we keep talking about how great multimodality is but all of our scholarship is print and like print has affordances it's great but like we have to continue to you know not just talk the talk but walk the walk and, and, and yeah. produce academic knowledge in ways that take advantage of, of the affordances of, of multimodality um, are you seeing some examples of that I have a confession, <laughs> which is that when I was in grad school, I really wanted to make a fan crack video as like a form of oh, academic awesome. scholarship. Um, and I actually did it for an independent study. Um, and I don't know if you've heard of a fan crack video before. It, it's kind of like a remix of um, a particular show or like a, a like you you remix the text that you're interested in yeah, yeah. with a bunch of different like memes like visual audio you know yeah. like all sorts of memes um and they just like they're like back to back and they've got like static between them um so that's like, awesome no i haven't this, heard of that yeah this loose interconnected series of like memes like video memes and like together they they say something i don't know like uh, about like what you find funny, they're like very intertextual. Um, and so I, I tried to make an, a, a, a fan crack video, uh, remixing like different scholars, what they were saying about literacy 
with my student participants and like um, what she was saying about One Direction and Wattpad and just like mixing it together. And I um, sent it to a multimodal journal. They were like, what are you doing? Like, what is <laughs> I, I love it. That's so great. <laughs> they were like, can you please make this like a more professional quality? Like we don't like the, you know, like static in between the different <laughs> things. And I was, I was just like, but, but that's what yeah. the form calls for, you know, like it's, yeah. it's not a documentary. A documentary has its own multimodal rules but like this is following <laughs> well i mean and, and that's and that's the yeah, trick isn't it that rules. that you know the people who are in the those spaces who are like you know working at, at journals or are, are doing that sort of publishing like they need to be aware not only of the sort of like literary or scholarly sort of like discourses that they're a part of but also all of these other ones online and considering how you know fa how rapidly they're evolving and changing I'd imagine it's that that's part of the, the problem. I mean, I remember yeah. I, was, I had my, like my first few years of teaching when back when it was like the classic, like, you know, there were like maybe 20 memes that just kind of like existed. And for like five years, the shelf life of a meme when I first started teaching, it was worth it to put a bunch of them in my presentations. And now I'm at the point where I'm like a meme one day and like two weeks later, people are like, Mr. Love, that meme's dead. Yeah. So like even it? meme culture has, has cycled a lot faster. Yeah. That's that's true. And I've often struggled with, especially in scholarly work, like th things that you know about because you participate in it, particularly web comics. I really love to, to oh, cool. write and study web comics, but there's like very little scholarship on it. And so I remember writing a chapter for a book and I cited TV tropes as like, you know, like <laughs> I'm getting this from TV tropes. They were like, you cannot cite TV tropes <laughs> as a credible source. It's like, but that's the only source that reflects my knowledge yeah. Yeah. of like what this thing is. Um, and I feel like that is a problem with scholarship. Like, why can't we cite these fan created knowledge, you know, like, I don't know. It, it just really, um, yeah, I, I feel like maybe, maybe the, the new literacies people and like that kind of scholarship is recognizing, um, yeah. the, the value of these like online repositories more. Um, but I've definitely struggled navigating that. Yeah, no, it, it could definitely, it could definitely be a challenge. Um, so if we were to sort of take uh, this, I feel like we have like this overflowing bucket of all these like sort of um, awesome interconnected ideas and think about, you know, at the beginning of the, the podcast, we talked about wanting to invite teachers to reconceptualize um, literacy and reconceptualize like what an English class could look like. So could you kind of maybe like provide like a, like a snapshot, a vignette of like what it would look like to teach a class in this way um, or, or a sequence mm -hmm. of classes? Yeah. Well, so one thing that I think about is um, I really love the movement Disrupt Text. Mm -hmm. um, and um, they they are founded by um, four women of color educators who have just really pushing back on um, what texts in the classroom can be. And they um, question the canon, they question um, how we choose texts and they lift up um, like YA books and te text by diverse authors. And, and I love that. And I think another aspect of that is also um, multimodal text, like youth created text, um, memes and, 
you know, video essays and just like all, all of these um, different types of texts are things that we can study together, um, that we can learn about discourse from looking at them, um, that our classrooms are really enriched um, by, by broadening what we think of as texts worthy for being studied. Um, that's one thing. I think that there's something really valuable about um, making space for students to bring in texts that they love. Um, and uh, and it's not easy. Like it, it's very easy like to say, okay, you know, I love Romeo and Juliet. We have to study Romeo and Juliet. And so that's what we're doing. Um, and and you know, usually students will be like, oh, you know, roll their eyes, okay. But like, if, if you say, okay, you know, your classmate loves Grey's Anatomy, we're gonna study Grey's Anatomy, then they're like, it can be a lot more contentious um, because you don't have that power hierarchy of like, okay, you know, this is school and you just do it. Like these, these really legitimate conflicts come up like, well, maybe I don't like this show uh, and, you know, I'm not going to love it. And like, why do we have to study it? And, and like, instead of just saying, okay, at school, you have to do it. Like talking about like, why, why are we studying it? What does it mean to study something that someone else loves? Like, what are the, what are the relational dynamics of like engaging with each other around things that you might not choose to read yourself? Um, Scott and I have a paper coming out in um, JLR um, all about um, the ways that we saw um, the young women of color in our, in our class, their, their textual passions were often positioned as like unworthy um, or like not something that um, the young men in the class wanted to study or the white students wanted to study. And they would be like, oh, this is very dramatic. It's very emotional like it's not it's not like as worthwhile of a, of a text and um we had to really spend time um thinking about what what it means like to to have students doing that to each other and scott and i were like hey we're seeing some sexism, we're seeing some racism, you know, like in our analysis, we were, we were seeing that. And we were thinking like, wow, as, as educators, there's just something really valuable about helping students to navigate that, you know, cause if, you know, like they're doing it in fandom spaces, right. There's like anti-fandoms, like people are attacking things that other people love um, and racism, sexism, homophobia, you know, like all that stuff is coming up. And so in your, um, in your class, taking time to navigate that can be really important. I remember one of my student teachers um, tried bringing um, a BTS song into her, her okay. class. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, the teacher said that a lot of the kids in the class were like, well, why do we have to study this? And the teacher was like, well, you don't have to if you don't want to, like, just do something else. And my student mm. teacher was reflecting, and she was like, wait, I don't understand. So, like, you're going to enforce everyone to read these poems by like dead white authors and like you just have to do it. But if it's written um, by, you know, an, an Asian artist, 
then no, you don't have to study it. Like you can just say, I hate this and, <laughs> you know, yeah. like not do it. Like she, she really pointed out some of the xenophobia, um, some of the racism that was like, and, and I thought, you know, like it's a good thing to unpack uh, in your class using critical lenses in like this, this, um, you know, much more controlled space um more relational space than you know people hashing out very depersonalized and decontextualized online yeah um, no, that's, it's it's interesting that you say that because it's it's sort of like the the double-edged sword of of you know when the teacher is the arbiter of taste in the classroom and says this is good because I say it's good because the literary scholars say, you know, and that sort of hierarchy is just there. And, you know, students are like, okay, whatever. Um, but now you, as if a teacher steps back and like, okay, like, what are your tastes? Like what, what what's your personal taste hierarchy and how that can clash and that could begin to clash. Yeah. So that I could, that's a, that's an interesting sort of tension that, that might um, arise. I could, I yeah. could definitely see how that might need some um, scaffolding for students to navigate. Yeah. And then um, uh, a final thing I want to say is just thinking about like, okay, what is the imagined audience for the the performance assessments that I have for students? Like, mm. is it um, is it always like this imaginary um, literary scholar reading it and I'm just proxy for that scholar? Um, or am I going to support students to like write things and engage in discourses that they care about? Um, so one of the performance um, assessments we had was a fandom transformation project where students identified a fandom discourse. They they talked about um, in they, they analyzed like what is problematic in this discourse, and then they made an artifact that tried to address that problem or shift the fandom toward justice. Um, and in our class, we we kind of ran out of time to support them in like posting it or like a lot of students didn't want to post it. And like, that's something that I've been trying to unpack and other scholars like um, in Jane Lammer's work, she has some great um, classes that are focused around fan fiction writing um, where teachers don't even read the final product. Like it's all about students posting authentically in those spaces and, and they don't have to like share it out like with the classroom community if they don't want to. And so, and so that's interesting. Um, it, it's like an, an interesting question about assess, assessment. It's an yeah. interesting question about audience. Um, and there are lots of different ways to navigate that. Um, yeah. And so I, yeah. I, I find those questions really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean, just like, um, last year that the, the, just to bring up the notion or idea of audience to my students, it was really fascinating to see how many of them hadn't really grappled with that before and how much they realized like, wow, that could, that would really change how I would write. And, and one of the things that I was, I was experimenting with was, you know, following the curriculum that we had layout for us, I, you know, there was like a formal like position paper. So, you know, we ran through what are the sort of like, if you're writing to a, uh, a policy think tank, what sort of language would you use? What kind of text would you make? But then they were able to remix it and I'm like okay so now your audience is like somebody else who, who cares about this social justice issue and is a teen on TikTok or they're on mm. YouTube and they're watching documentaries so based on that new audience not only how you're using language differently but like what sort of text would you construct you would yeah. write a position paper if you're trying to get teens to care more about you know uh recycling or about issues related to um your community 
Um, so like, what sort of text would you produce? And, and students came up with all sorts of different text types, but it, but it was really fascinating for them to be like, I'd never thought about the fact that when I'm, when I'm writing a paper, it's because that's how that community sort of communicates. And, you know, when I'm writing, when I'm creating a TikTok and the choices that I make, they're really based on, you know, the audience that I'm trying to communicate yeah. to. And just that idea that where they're beginning to realize that like the taste of their audience, the norms of the discourse communities that they're in shapes like all of their interactions online. Yeah, um, no, I just... love that. And I love that it can also like, you can restructure your assessment ecosystem in your classroom um, so that you are not the only, like you as a teacher are not the authoritative exactly. you know, source of feedback. And um, I think that when you have assignments that, you know, they aren't just writing for you, right? They're writing for a wider yeah. audience, then feedback matters more, right? Definitely. You can say like, hey, I sometimes when I give feedback, I, I want to like position myself. I'll be like, okay, like I am an expert in this. And so I'm going to give you my feedback from this perspective. But like, you know, this peer is an expert in, you know, whatever, Sonic the Hedgehog. So when they read it, you know, they're yeah. going to be <laughs> giving you, you know, feedback that's valuable for this kind of reader. And, and I think that it's, it's, um, it's so great to disrupt your classroom in that way, because that's what real life is like, right? Yeah. Like you write something and you could get tons of feedback <laughs> and, you know, people think different things because, because they're positioned in different ways. You know, they're, they're coming from different perspectives. And I think being able to navigate that feedback a very important part of yeah. our digital world. I mean, just look at Twitter. <laughs> uh, def uh, yes, for sure. And, and it's and it's it's funny because students kind of struggle with that at first. Like, I had a group that was doing a album review of Taylor Swift's um, latest um, drop, and they were like, you know, Mister, like, what do you think about like our review of the album? And I was like, well, I mean, I can talk to you about, like your audio quality and how you bring in music, but like, I am not a I'm not a huge Swifty. I like T Swift. But I definitely don't know how this album compares to her last few, like yeah. musically speaking. They kind of realized, like, oh, so like we should be asking other Swifties. And I was like, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right? So that's yeah, that's, it that's shifts yeah. who whose feedback you need. Yeah, um, yeah, and you know, like, don't we all do that? Like, we we take our writing to different places. Like, if if I want feedback. Um, uh, about a fan fiction that I'm writing, you know, I'm not going to take it yeah. to, <laughs> not going to take it to you probably, <laughs> unless it's a fandom that you love, in which case I might. We'll, ha we'll have to swap fandom, um, uh, and, and sort of see like uh, what we're, <laughs> what we have in so, common. So, um, if, if folks were wanting to uh, read more of your research to learn more about, um, some of the ideas that we talked about tonight, like ACA fandoms or, or discourse communities, or just generally dig into this work more, where would you recommend, um, they go and then how can they connect with you, um, after the, well, podcast? they should come find me on Twitter, um, Karis underscore M underscore Jones. Um, it links to my website, um, where I, I have, um, <laughs> articles, podcasts, Twitter chats, you know, hopefully like a, a lot of different um, things that you can scroll through and engage with. And um, I'm always happy to send on a copy of something if you want to read it. Um, and I try to link to everything that's available online. Um, and yeah, stay posted for our JLR article, which I'm really excited about. It's going to be my Congrats. first uh, first paper 
um, for my dissertation coming out from me and Scott. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I will stay tuned and I'm sure audience will too, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming on and, and having this uh, impassioned discussion. It was, uh, it was awesome. Thank you. It was so, it was so great to talk to you, uh, Trevor, like just thanks for your really thoughtful questions. And um, I just want to say to all the teachers who are listening, like it's, it's not impossible. You can do this. And um, I, it, it's just, it's worth making some paradigm shifts um for the sake of your students passions so like bring them in it's worth it uh, excellent beautifully said thanks for tuning in to this episode of conceptually speaking we hope you enjoyed the conversation and are coming away with a stronger grasp of the concepts and mental models that help us understand our world if you like this podcast feel free to like comment or subscribe on your favorite platform 